Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Do you have a warrant for your arrest for the murder of William Moore, who was the gas station attendant? But you're wrong. From NBI Studios, this is Truth and Justice, a crowdsourced investigation in real time. I'm Bob Ruff. Last week, our investigation yielded new information that may have completely invalidated our previous profile. To refresh your memory, several months ago, Jim Clemente came on the show and profiled the scene when we believed that Bill was standing behind the counter and the unidentified subject or unsub that robbed him and killed him was standing on the customer side of the counter. We know that the unsub stayed in the station before he shot Bill for at least five minutes after he had the money before he fled. Given the fact that the entire time, in that scenario, he was just four feet away from the door with nothing obstructing his path, behaviorally speaking, the only thing that made sense at that time was that he had a personal grudge with Bill and an argument was ensuing that led to the murder. But now we have new information. We know now that the body was moved 180 degrees, and based on Bill's actual body position when he was found by Officer Pilo and Officer Williams, the evidence is now indicating that at the very least it's possible, if not plausible, that the scenario was completely backwards, and that Bill was the one standing outside the counter, and his killer was the one behind it, with Bill obstructing his path of egress. This new scenario changes everything. And it's for that reason that Jim Clemente has joined me again over the phone to reassess our crime scene and develop a new profile. Texas Ranger James Holland is a legendary interrogator. They call him the serial killer whisperer. You can't hide those indications. And that's why yesterday I knew that you did it. But now, shocking interrogation tapes reveal how the super cop really operates. And that's why they asked me to come in, because I'm special. From Something Else, The Marshall Project, and Sony Music Entertainment, this is Smokescreen. Just say you're sorry. Listen and follow on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Say goodbye to the dish and hello to Skystream, the new way to get Sky over Wi-Fi. So you can get unmissable Sky shows like The Last of Us and Succession as well as Netflix and Discovery Plus, and loads more, all in one subscription for £26 a month. Oh, and next day delivery with no upfront fee. Skystream. TV simplified. Head to sky.com. Requires Skystream and broadband minimum speed 10 megabits per second, 18-month minimum term. Cut-off times apply for next day delivery. Excludes bank holiday. 18 plus. Terms apply. 
Jim had a very tight window to record our interview, so we wasted no time, and we got right into it. Right off the bat, Bob, I have to tell you, I think that you're dealing with something that we dealt with. Are we already recording? Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm recording everything, so okay. I can cut up whatever okay. I need to. All right. No, it's that's not. I just didn't want to start unless you were recording. Yep. So, and am I clear enough? I'm wearing using my headphones. Yep, you sound great. Okay, I think we're dealing with something that we dealt with pretty heavily in the Vince Foster equivocal death investigation, and that's that people who respond, even police officers, can be confused, and the imprecision of the human language, of excuse me, and the imprecision of the English language makes it very difficult to understand what people are talking about. So a couple things. So you said that there's eyewitnesses, first responding cops, right? The CSI person who said they saw only saw his feet sticking out from behind the counter, right? Right, while looking through the glass front door. Yeah, well, when you're saying through the glass front door. They may or may not have been looking through the glass front door, but there's glass on the side, there's glass to the left of the front door, and there's the glass front door. Why would they only look through the front door? He's pretty specific in his narrative, and that's why that one, uh, that last diagram I just sent you, mm-hmm. um, the reason I put that in there was because he said he was, Pilo was coming from across the street, and you see I kind of tracked his movements with the red dot, that red line there. Mm-hmm. He initially went to Martinez, and then he says very specifically, and then Officer Williams is 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 pulling up to the intersection, so he sees this happening as well. And then he said he moved from the southeast corner of the parking lot in a northwesterly direction, and he, he didn't know anything was happening yet at that point. And he said as soon as he got to the door where he was going to go in, he looked in and saw shoes. So he drew his weapon and went in. Clearly, the only photograph that was taken was a picture of of the guy in the opposite position, right? Right. And that was taken by the um, the CSI who showed up. He showed on, up on the scene an hour after the fact, and it was probably, probably another 30 minutes before he actually got inside. Right, but is, is that the same CSI who said that when they looked through the window, it was no, he was facing the opposite way. No, no, no. That was the so it was Pila was just a, it was not a, a CSI. He was just the initial responding officer to the holdup alarm. No, I know, but then it, there's, it says another person, Williams. Will Officer Williams was the other first responding officer that got there right behind Pilo. Okay, and he said that the guy was facing the other way too. Yeah, they both they both very clearly said that his. Feet were visible from behind the counter to the east. His head was to the west, and they said his his head was pointed towards the slightly to the southwest, with his feet to the slightly to the northeast. And then they also both noted that the body was moved 180 degrees later, but it was never clear. And that's as you see, as I'm struggling to find pictures for you, the the, the investigation is pretty lackluster to begin with. No, it's never clear what, how he got moved. They said they so Pilo goes in first, sees his body in that orientation, feet to the east, head to the west. He goes back into the storage room, clears it, makes sure and checks the bathroom back there. There's nobody there, and then 
exits the station, tells Officer Williams, we've got, we've got the attendant is down. They both go back in. Williams also notes feet to the east, head to the west. Williams flips him over onto his back, cuts his shirt open. He was going to do CPR and then determined there was nothing that could be done. Both of them, when they are reporting this, say the body was moved 180 degrees. Williams said that the medics moved the body 180 degrees to work on him. But the medics report say they they didn't do anything with him. Right. And that's what they said in the Vince Foster case. We didn't touch the body. And then I said, I brought them all in and I re-interviewed them. And I asked them specifically and I asked them to bring their manual. And I said, what does your manual say when you first arrive at a scene where somebody is injured? And they said, open an airway and check for pulse. And I said, okay, how do you open an airway? Put our finger behind the neck, lift up, it opens the airway. Okay, how do you check for pulse? We put our fingers on the side of the, of the neck. And I said, how did you accomplish this without touching the body? Oh, well, we did that. <laughs> so, right. you know, it's the imprecision of, of the language. We didn't do, we didn't do anything. Right. What does that mean? You went into automatic mode. You needed to get access with his head by the safe and you couldn't get to it. You know, so you turned him around. Why didn't they bring him into the center of the grocery area? I don't know, but it's possible that that's what was happening. That they just went into auto mode. They weren't even thinking, and they turned him around so that they could get access to do CPR or whatever. Right, and, and that makes is vital. I thought I thought about that. There's some issues with it, but I thought the same thing. You know, because I was a, I was a first responding medic myself. Yeah, and the first thing I thought is if you're going to go through the trouble of moving him to work on him. Why would you keep him in the same, you know, turn him around in the same confined space? Like you said, pull him out into the open area. But then the other issue we have is pretty quickly after police arrive on scene, reporters start showing up. They start reporting on the newspaper. They don't know what's happened, but over the radio, they're, they're saying there's been a robbery and a shooting at the Clark Station. One of the other employees who was supposed to be working that night gets a call from her sister who says, hey, there was a shooting at the Clark Station. Are you okay? She goes down there. She said when she got there that there were, you know, everybody was kind of in a holding pattern. Everybody was like waiting outside. And she walked up to talk to the officers because she was one of the employees. They wanted to talk to her and looked right through the window or through the front door and said the same thing Pilo said. When she looked through, she could see his feet, only his feet. She said she could see from like the, the knees or the shins down. She could see his sneakers. The EMTs hadn't gotten there yet? EMTs had already left. That's what's, what's crazy about it. But the family was on the scene the whole time. There's, there's a couple notes in uh, um, an inquest uh, hearing about the cause of death where the, the coroner says, you know, that they, they pulled a wallet out of his pocket or something at some point. She doesn't say, she says that happened after the CSI gets there. But then she also mentions kind of in passing her and another guy say that the family or the his parents were there, too, but they're not specific about were the parents inside or outside. So I almost wonder if at some point during that time, the family had gone in or something. And yeah, but still, that doesn't up. make sense. Like, why would they take him and flip him over? Like, what what is the point of that? 
I I have no idea. None of it makes any sense at all. Like how he got the thing that makes the most sense would be that the medics moved him. But then we get thrown off when her name's Jeannie Luna is the is the uh, employee. When she said, no, I still had it burned into my head. It it freaked me out because I I looked in and I could see his feet. I could see his shoes sticking out from behind the counter. And she was definitely looking through the glass door. Yeah. Yeah. And why are they letting people in the front of the crime scene like that? Well, there's a whole lot of whys in this in this investigation. Is it possible that she was looking through the glass on the left side of the building? Doesn't sound like it. And, and also, you know, you got that you, you got that four foot counter that long, runs along the front. I mean, you have to be you have to be almost right up on it. But I'm not talking about the front. What about the glass side of the building? You talking about on the west side? On the west side of the building. You know, we we, we looked at those pictures I said because that's one area I've we don't have a real clear view. You know, there's a Coke machine over there. Yeah, you call them like Coke machines, but you're. Those aren't Coke machines, right? Those are, I mean, one says Coke on it, the one on the outside of the building. Right. The one on the inside says Pepsi, but those are coolers. Those are refrigerators. They have multiple different things in them. Right. Yeah, I, I just mean there's a there's a big thing in the way is what I'm getting at. Yeah, with sliding glass door, right. Yeah. Yeah, it doesn't block that whole side. And it just to me, on a crime scene, that the police would allow people access to the front door as opposed to keeping people off to the sides where they can't get in. I don't know. It just doesn't seem plausible, but whatever. Maybe that's what they did. Well, and the other thing is, too, I'm, I'm looking now in that Word document I sent you where there's the two crime scene photos in there. Mm-hmm. Do you see the one shows the view, like, over the counter? Yeah, from the... This is not... This is coming from inside. Right. That picture is inside. The left side is the is the front, right? And the and straight ahead is is the, the would, outside. Yeah, so straight ahead would be that west wall you're talking about where there is glass on the outside. But what I'm getting at is if you look, the view would be completely obstructed by all the cigarette cases and shelves there if someone was trying to look in from that way. Yeah, well, this is at what? This picture is being taken at what height, you know? Right. You know, maybe if, I guess if you're five foot five, you can't see in. But if you're five foot ten, you might be looking right over that. I don't know. Yeah, it could be. But I mean, I can only go by what she told me, which is that she was standing in the right. parking lot and looked straight in. All right. Well, but if she looked straight in and only saw feet, then the EMTs couldn't have done it because they're already gone. Right. And it, it's just crazy. And, but, you know, looking at this photo itself, I mean, and I know it's not the best quality and so on and so forth. And his shirt is cut open, but I don't see a hell of a lot of blood from these gunshot wounds that pierced his heart. No, there was very little. And I think that's part of why the, um, there's like no blood spatter. There's a couple drops on the floor and a couple drops on a shelf behind the counter but one of the reasons the there's end, no big pool of blood on the floor no no and as you can see look at his chest i mean there's no there's not much blood on his chest either it was one of the reasons why the me determined that his death was almost immediate because you know it's small caliber so it's a small hole and when it punctured all four chambers of the heart there was no pressure to pump any blood out 
you know, when you have gravity, but he was slightly on his left side and very small puncture wounds, and he had two shirts on over it. So the shirts kind of absorbed it. Right. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. All right, so we now have a different positioning and we have somebody who moved the body for some unknown reason mm-hmm. you know so was he trying to get into the storage area you know run in there for cover i don't know but what's interesting in what you say that the unsub was behind the counter and he could have been the one pressing the no sale that doesn't account for the the alarm though no, well, I mean, th- I think there's a lot of things that that could have happened. A hypothesis that I had was, you know, the, if the guy, you know, points a gun at him, tells him to open the register, he opens it, gives him the money, and then if that then turns into conflict, where, and I'm I'm kind of pulling off too a lot of the armed robberies that were happening in Bloomington at the time, some similarities, but that if the guy came in behind the counter, you see where the the, the silent alarm is, it's kind of in the corner. Yes. So my thought was a couple things. One, so we have the the no sale at 8.15 and the alarm press at 8.16. But right. those have two different timekeeping mechanisms. So we don't know if they're in oh. sync. So, you know, they could have been done inst- simultaneously. They could have been done the other way around. You know, with just a couple, you know, one could have been 15 and 59 seconds and the other one's at 16 and one second. But my thought was, with the stool stool knocked over down right there in that corner, is that maybe they were both behind the counter, and when the, if the unsub's back there with him and doesn't believe him or whatever, is looking into the register, that might have been the distraction Bill needed to reach under and hit the alarm. It's just a hypothesis, but just trying to figure out how you know things ended up laid out the way they ended up laid out. Yeah, I mean, you know, certainly in certain robberies, the bad guy jumps over the or comes around the counter and 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 that's they get the person who's there to cower in the corner and they take over but it just doesn't look like that's the case here you know because the the multiple no sales and then almost immediately that silent alarm after one of the no sales what I don't understand is why you have that he's shot twice at 821. How do we pinpoint that time? That time is based on, we know that Pilo reported on the scene at 821, or at 820, got out of his car and was walking up to the scene. And when he was across the street, he saw Danny Martinez crouched over putting air in his tires. 
And then he saw right. Martinez. He said, and he saw Martinez then get up, walk towards the store, turn around, walk back towards the store, walk back again, and then get in his truck and go. When I interviewed Martinez, he said while he was putting air in his tire, he heard two bangs that he thought may it might have been a, a car backfire or something. He wasn't sure. But did he, did he say he immediately got up and walked towards the door there? Yeah, I, well, he, he didn't. Not that specific. And again, it's choice of words. But you know, he he said that he was putting air in his tires. He heard the two bangs. He got up and started to walk towards the store, and then started started walking back. Walked towards again and saw a man leave the front door, run around the front of the building, and then north towards the alley. Right, and you didn't. Palo didn't. Did he say that he saw Martinez walking there, walking back, walking there again, or did he say he just saw him walking there and back? No, yeah, he he said he saw him while he was while he was putting air in his tires. Saw him get up, head towards the store, back towards his car, back towards the store, and then back to his car. So he and Martinez described kind of the, the same thing happening. All right. So we know that time was eight twenty eight twenty one when Pilo saw him doing that. While he's doing that is when he said he heard the two bangs, and then he also said he saw the the person leaving out the front door. Which we talked about that last time, how strange it is that Pilo didn't see the man walking out the front door, but we determined that that's possible considering where he was at and where his focus was. Right. And I'm sure now looking at some of the color photos we didn't have before, I think the boarded up windows probably helped with that too, because even though there's some overhead light, because of the boarded up windows along there, there's no light from inside the store silhouetting the guy as he's you know walking, walking around the corner. Right, and we don't know... I mean, there's crime scene tape in these color photos, in the color photo from night, and you just don't know whether or not that is exactly the light that was shining on the, the boarded up part. So he could have had, you know, what is that? That's probably four, you know, seven feet, you know, on the front side and three or four feet on the east side that there's no light coming out of the building. So Right. And this was what time of day? About eight o'clock at night. Sunset was at six nineteen that night, so it was dark. Yeah, so it's pretty dark. Yeah, yeah. So he could have turned the corner in shadow, and the officer just was was looking at Martinez at the time. You know, right? He wasn't focusing on the front door of the thing. Yeah, and and I think before we talked last time, I actually did a test of covering that distance. All in, it's like three and a half seconds it takes to just at a brisk walk before you could be out of sight from that door. So it's, it didn't have to take the, you know, all he, he could have been looking at his radio tree, you know, fishing for his radio for a second. That's all it would have taken. Right. And depending on the angle, like one of these shots that you have, half of that space is taken up by, by the gas pumps. If you're coming at from a certain angle. Right. If yeah. you look at the, the, the daytime one, black and white, Mm-hmm. You know, if you look, if you, if you zoom in and you, you look at the gas pumps, they cover, I mean, certainly they're, they're head high and they have, they have some, you know, either advertisement or something up there on top of them. And so, you know, they cover an entire human being without, without problem. Right. And it's, it's funny because that picture is taken. From a, I wonder if it was intentional or not, but the way he described it from Pilo's 
point of view from his angle and that Pump Island is literally right in the middle of that boarded up that window. boarded up there. Yep. So I think that explains, you know, why I didn't see him. I mean, he literally could have looked up at that instant, looked back to Martinez, looked up again, and the guy was gone mm-hmm. a second and a half later, right? Because if it takes three seconds to traverse that, then, you know, if he had looked up when the guy's at one and a half seconds, he would have been completely blocked. If he looked to Martinez for another one and a half seconds, and look back, the guy's gone. Right, um, but th- but anyway, that that's that's how we get to that eight twenty one timeline. And when and when we got it, and when we spoke last time, I mean that was really the major point of discussion and basis for the profile was the fact that we know the drawer was last opened at eight fifteen. It was never closed again after that. The silent alarm was pressed at eight sixteen, and at that time. My belief was Bill was behind the counter and the customer was where customers stand. So he's literally four feet from the door. Why does he stick around for five more minutes and shoot him? Yeah. And it could have been that, and you know, you have to understand that this is a dynamic situation, right? So Bill could have been extremely nervous at that point, knowing that he called the cops and let's say bill is facing away from that back room facing towards the front of the door facing out and he sees police officer coming down the street and maybe you know he could have said something he could have reacted and that's when pop pop happened because the bad guy he said to the guy the police are coming and so the guy shot him and took off I don't know. Right. And and I thought about that is that, you know, cause that's what I've been for months now in this case, trying to figure out what was the trigger for the man to pull the trigger, you know, that, but then it was, is there still has to be, it seems very out of character. And I think that's why we kind of both agreed to profile that this is probably somebody that knew bill because for just an armed robber, once you got the money at a busy gas station, you get the hell out. Yeah. Unless he, I mean, unless the guy peeked out and saw Martina and didn't want to go, then he got triggered to pull the trigger. That's when he left. I mean, he didn't do it until something happened. In other words, maybe he wasn't planning on shooting him at all. And maybe something that he did, that Little did, you know, got him to the point where he said, you know, I'm going to shoot you. And he shoots him. Or at some point he realizes that Little pushed the silent alarm. Or at some point he thinks, okay, now the people that I was concerned about being here, being potential witnesses, it's all clear. So I can shoot him now. So that's possible that that that's why he did it. It's also possible that they were engaged in some sort of argument, like you said. Mm -hmm. There's a few different scenarios. Well, I, I guess I guess let's start with this. When you're looking at the body position in the way that it actually was, I know there's a lot of there's a lot of variables there, but to me, when I look at it, when I think if somebody goes down, if they're crawling or whatever, they're going forward. It's hard for me to imagine a scenario where Bill is shot behind the counter and ends up all the way around the other end with his feet pointed in that direction unless 
he was actually standing around the somewhere around that doorway around the end of the counter. Yeah, I mean, it looks like that if he engaged that silent alarm, that in the six minutes between that time, or five minutes between that time and the time that he was shot, that he went around that counter and was on the far end. Now, it's possible that wherever the shooter was, that he used the end of that counter as protection, you know, he was trying to get away from him or something. And, you know, that's why he was down at that end. I don't know. Right. It's also possible that, you know, the shooter was saying this whole time was saying, open that safe, open that safe, open that safe. Right. And he was like, I can't open it. I can't open it. Show me, you know, whatever. And finally, he just got so frustrated with that he shot him. Right. And, and, you know, that's another common theme in some of the other armed robberies in town was there's one particular one where, where we, we know who, di- who did it, a string of them, and never learned their lesson because in every single one kept demanding the safe be open, even and they all told we can't open the safe. Did they shoot the people when they got frustrated? No. No, they were just, just robberies. So I, I guess if, if we can look through what the behavior tells you in a couple different, because obviously we have to hypothesize about what actually happened. We talked about if Bill's behind the counter and the unsubs in the, in the customer position. Looking at this crime scene, if what was determined was that the unsub actually was behind the counter looking for himself under the register and Bill had moved out to the end of the counter and we have that five minutes to me, my, my, my assessment of that, and that's what I really wanted to hear your take on as the expert, is now maybe that five minutes makes a little more sense if Bill is either physically trying to stop him from leaving or more likely trying to stall him because he knows the police are coming. And then the triggering mechanism could be, you know, that finally maybe Bill or the unsub sees Martinez is outside. There's a cop walking across the street, and Bill's like, "Okay, this, they're here," and he's not going to let him out. And then the unsub shoots him and gets out. I right. mean, how do, does that make sense to you? Because there's some weird things there that, as I mentioned in my in my email to you, make sense on paper. But would someone be physically aggressive towards someone who has a gun? Do you, have you seen that in your experience, or is that pretty unlikely? If, like I said, if he knows that the cops are there, he may have become emboldened. And he he may say, cops are here. I pulled the alarm. They're here. Thinking that that's going to get the guy to give up. Instead, the guy shoots him and leaves. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Don't you love an extra $100 in your pocket? 
Have a TurboTax expert file your taxes for you by March 31st to get $100 back instantly. Because no matter what moves you made last year, TurboTax makes them count. That means getting $100 back and 100% accurate taxes only from Intuit TurboTax. Must file by 331. Credit only applicable to federal filing fees with TurboTax full service. Offer can be modified or terminated at any time. So I have a question. Is there an exit in the storage room or the only exit is the front door? Only exit the front door. One way in, one way out. All right. So that's something that potentially this offender had to discover, right? Right. But it doesn't sound like he spent the time to do that. In other words, if the shots go off at 821 and Martinez hears the shot and almost immediately this guy comes out, then God didn't even have to go look into the storage room for a way out. Like, in other words, you would think that it would take a minute or something for a guy who shoots somebody and is faced with a potential witness on the outside and potentially the police walking in, maybe to check the back room to see if there's a way out so he could escape that way. Right. But he doesn't. He goes out the front door almost immediately after he shoots the guy. Why didn't he check the back room? Because he already surveilled the place. Well, that's as he already that, knew. To me, that that there's there's one of two things that that would indicate to me. One would be that you know during the whatever total amount of time that he was there, nine minutes. At some point, he went into the back room already, which also might explain Bill's body position, which I hadn't thought of. If the guy did try to go out the back, realize there's no door, and that's why Bill's standing there, or just it would tell me panic. And I only knew that from, you know, fire investigations. You know, the reason why codes say even if you have a million doors in the theater, the main door has to be able to fit your occupancy to get out. Because when people panic, they always go out to, even though there's fire exits everywhere, they always want to go back out the way they came in. Right. And so it's possible that he brought Bill into the back room with them to check that out as an opportunity for egress. And when that didn't work, they came out through that storage room door and he shot him there and took off. You know, Bill right. may have tried to stop him at that point. What I find it hard to believe is that the unsub is behind the counter getting the cash register door and then shoots him and then steps over his body and leaves. I don't know. It just seems. The only the only way I can see that making sense is if Bill was, and that's why I want to know if that happens, is because the only way that made sense to me is I'm imagining in my mind Bill physically saying, like physically stopping him, and the guy's like, get the hell out of the way or I'm going to shoot you. And he's like, nope, the cops are here. And the guy right. just out of desperation is like, fine, bang, bang, and flees. Right. That is a possibility. I mean, and again, you know, when your job is to protect the place, right? You're you're the only representative of this company here and you're not supposed to let people leave with the money. You probably once you know you've successfully triggered the alarm and that the police should be coming, you might one want to delay the guy from leaving, so maybe you're talking him down, or two, you might physically try to restrain him. And I think the talking him down could account for that five, six-minute gap. 
and the restraining could account for the fact that he's gotten shot. Yeah, I, I, I agree that. I mean, that's that's what it seems like to me. And I know there's a lot of other scenarios, but, you know, there's other indicators there, in my opinion, too, like the stool. Originally, we knew there was a stool. We don't have any pictures of it. We knew there was a stool behind the counter. And because of the way Bill's body was turned in the crime scene photos, it was kind of near his feet, which made sense if he was like sitting on the counter or on the chair or standing right next to it when he got shot that he got kicked over. But now when you move his feet the other way and you kind of get him further away, and then in other reports, we find a description that the stool was actually kind of tucked, knocked over and tucked up under the counter, kind of where I have it there, further away from where he shot. Now, to me, this duel looks like another indication that there likely was some sort of scuffle behind that counter between the two of them. Yeah, or that the unsub went back there, knocked it out of his way, you know, in front to grab the the thing out of the till. Right. But in either case, I, I guess I should restate that. it's. A, I think it's an indicator that at some point the unsub was behind the counter. Mm-hmm. Not that he was just... Because what I was picturing that before... The entire time was that the unsub walks up, stands up at the customer place on the counter, points a gun, says, give me the money. And then I'm baffled for all these months trying to figure out why he stuck around for five minutes when he could have stepped out and left and then shoots him. I think that if Bill was sitting on that stool and the guy pulled a gun on him, the stool would have fallen the other way, right? Yeah, we mean just fallen down or fallen the other direction? would have been fallen it would have fallen with the top of the stool away from the threat right also well you, that part very well may not be accurate i know that you, we, we were told the stool was knocked down and tucked under the counter but i don't know the exact orientation of it so that don't don't take that off my drawing okay so then i don't know which, which way that stool fell but still the fact that it's down you're right it could be that bill was sitting on it when he got threatened with the gun and kind of stumbled back and knocking it over, you know? Mm-hmm. Or it could be that the guy came back there and knocked it out of his way. Or it could be that they had a scuffle and it got knocked down. So all three of those are possibilities. But I do think that it is possible that Bill was trying to talk him down just to delay because he knew that he had tripped the silent alarm. Right. He knew he didn't have to keep him there for very long before they would show up. Right. and. What's unfortunate is that, you know, that the officer did not focus his attention on that front door the entire time and instead was distracted by Martina. Right. You know, as, as, I'm, as I'm looking at it and thinking a little more about, you know, the unsub being behind the counter or not being behind the counter, the fact that the, the register tray is gone and we have the two no sales, right? So it was open twice. Doesn't seem like it would be that uncommon for you know, someone to get the cash and then not, you know, want to see under the drawer because they know that's where they keep big bills. Maybe that's why it was opened a second mm-hmm. time. But the fact that the tray's gone, and if you look, scroll down to the, or scroll up wherever you're at, I guess it's close enough. I was going to say that it seems like it would be tough for someone standing on this side of the counter to actually see into the drawer. It might be another reason for him to go around because he wants to look under. I would think that they would want to check for themselves especially if the take was pitiful. Right. So I would think that they wouldn't take the word of the guy and want, would want to check for themselves and go back there and actually pull that damn thing. And the fact that it's gone means that, you know, 
I am much more believing that he pulled it out himself rather than saying, okay, pull out the drawer and give it to me. I think he took it out. You know, how much money do you know? Do, do they normally keep a certain amount of money in the till and then drop everything over that? Yeah, there's there's supposed to. We know what did happen. We know that Bill dropped 60 bucks into the safe at 7.57, you know, 20 minutes before this, 15 minutes before this. And the take was like 90. I've heard a few different numbers, but I think it was like 92 or $94 is what was left in the drawer. So, yeah, he was keeping it empty. And I'm sure, but, you know, there's times we talked to other gas station employees that worked at this Clark station and others. They say, you know, you get busy. You, you, you can't you, you can't do that safe dump while there's a bunch of people there. So sometimes there'll be five, six, seven thousand dollars in there before you get a second to to dump the safe. So I'm sure that's what the what the robber was hoping for. Mm. But in this case it was you know, he got ninety bucks and he was hoping that there was more underneath and I think he probably went back there, grabbed the thing out himself to make sure there was nothing in there and then had it in his hands when he decided to pull the trigger and shoot Bill. Right. And so and, and with that, you see the tiny space that's back there. I think that it's a couple things. One, I want to talk about a profile again. But two, I think this is this is all the more reason to push with his with his attorneys for his. And we've I've talked to him about it already, but to push for MVAC DNA testing of his clothes. Yeah, because I think there's a lot better chance that they actually came into physical contact with each other. Yeah, I mean, obviously, the fact that the shots are fired three feet away or more, you know, that's unfortunate. But, hell, I I think it's a possibility. I think that they were, look, that's a choke point at the end of that counter. And chances are that he went back there. I mean, the way it looked, I think there's a high probability that, that the unsub was behind that counter. And, man, I wish they could have swiped the counter and collected any DNA from the counter and from the cash register keys and so forth. But obviously none of that was done, right? No. Well, and you know, they, they did something I wasn't familiar with, but they did electrostatic lifts from the floor for footprints. Mm. But because of the body position, when the CSI got there and apparently nobody told him that the body had been moved, he only did static lifts from the front door to where Bill's feet were. He didn't do static lifts from behind the counter, which is, you know, I, I don't know how accurate those are. I'm not super familiar with them, but it's like, come on. If they just, 50 people walked in front of the counter, but only Bill and probably his killer's footprints would have been behind the counter for whatever that would have been worth. It might have at least been enough not to land the guy in prison that's there now, if you know, if they're sized nine shoes and he wears a 13. But most of the testing was all done out with the assumption that the attacker was on the customer side of the counter the whole time. Who they arresting Javik for this? They arrested the guy's name is Jamie Snow. He's serving a life sentence. They arrested him eight years after the fact, and it was zero forensic evidence, zero witnesses, like eyewitnesses of him doing it. It was he was arrested with a string of twelve to fourteen jailhouse informants. That said that he, that they overheard him confessing over the years, but it was Easter Sunday, and his now ex-wife 
you know, says he was home with us on Easter Sunday and, you know, the, and, and his ex-in-laws say the same thing. And there's, he was in trouble for some other stuff and the police kind of had a hard on for him. Part of what we've done in our investigation is track down some of these witnesses who have, you know, a lot of them before I got involved and some after have admitted, recanted and said, you know, they, the state offered him a deal or the state threatened him if they didn't. And he got convicted on a bunch of hearsay testimony. That's it. There's no, no link. No, he had a prior history of shooting people or nope. the gun, nothing, nothing. No gun offense, uh, no history, no violent offenses at all. Um, he had been, when he was younger, he was, uh, as he put it, he was a, he was a, a, a burglar. That's what he did. Never any, um, armed robberies or, um, like home invasions, but he would break into people's house and, and steal from them when they weren't home. Also, he is uh six foot two at the time. He was like six foot two, 200 pounds or 175, about the same size as Bill. They were both right around six to 170, 175, something like that. Which to me, just you know, the, the the idea of Bill restraining somebody is another thing, you know. And and I I know I go too far with some of the my my theories on this, but I thought you know, if Bill was trying to restrain this person and had the gumption to try to restrain him, even with a gun, him being six to one seventy, it almost sounds to me. I would think well that maybe it was someone that was smaller in stature than him, somebody he felt like he could get the upper hand on. Yeah, it's just like I said, it's just curious, though, that the timing, how it worked out, the cop was literally steps away. How far away was he? Was he visible from the gas station? Or how many minutes had elapsed? In this case, five minutes had elapsed since he did the silent alarm. Had he ever tripped this alarm before? Little. Had he ever known how long it takes for the police response? You know, did that embolden him to say, you know, the cops are coming, you might as well just give up, you know, just give me the money back or just give up or leave, get out of here, you know, whatever. And right. that was enough to trigger the guy to shoot him. Yeah. And a couple, and I know we're, we're tight on time before you got to go. So I want to hit a couple other things real quick. I mentioned in there that he made a call right shortly before this happened, somewhere around 8, 8.05, to his his buddy's cousin. And she said that what he told her was that he felt he, he was nervous. He felt like something was going to happen and wanted Danny to come back. Right. So that, to me, you know what that indicated to me? That somebody had come in and out and in again. In other words, when they were there before, he felt that they were casing the joint. And so... To me, that that means that this offender, although he may not be known to the victim, had been in that store earlier or since the time that, you know, he, he was lurking around or he was outside or he was inside at the time just after his friend had left. So it's like, you know, I mean, you don't just get a premonition. I mean, right. He's saying something is up because he's witnessing behavior that seems suspicious. So, you know, it could have been one of those earlier customers, especially, you know, a low dollar customer, you know, who comes in and spends $3, for example. Right. Yeah, I thought the same thing that, that, that 
someone, something was making him nervous, either someone inside casing the joint or someone lingering out in the parking lot or in and out looking at him. So I, I, basically the same thing as you said. I think that no one he knew because he didn't say any names or didn't say exactly what was going on, but I feel like he would, he, he likely would have mentioned that if he knew the, who the person was, but somebody was lingering around one way or another that made him feel like he was about to get robbed. Right. And it's not somebody, I don't think it was somebody that he knew, but it is somebody that he thought his friend, just the presence of his friend would alleviate that problem. In other words, he may not have expected whoever was going to do something bad to be armed with a gun. And he thought that just having another person there will protect him. Deter them. That's all he needed. Well, so real quick, I know you've you've got a hard out, but based on kind of the new information or our discussion today, and just wait before before you say that. Just uh, what I can maybe do is I still have to drive somewhere for fifteen minutes, so we can continue the conversation once I get in my car. Okay, if you want to do that, all yeah. right. Shouldn't be too loud. I hope it's not bad. But go ahead. Okay. Well, what I was going to get at, unless there's more that we want to cover, is is what you feel is along the lines of a profile now with some of this new information. Well, one thing that I'll add to it, or one thing that I think is reinforced in what I originally said to you, is that this is not a real sophisticated offender. And I think the fact that he took the cash drawer with him or the cash insert with him tells me that he brought evidence of the crime with him. If he just had the money, money is fairly fungible. It's not like any of these bills would have been marked. It would have been very easy for him seconds after the robbery to divorce himself from the robbery, get rid of the gun. Nobody's going to know that he was the one. But the fact that the victim actually knew that something was up also tells me that he's not a sophisticated offender, that he, if he did this pre-attack surveillance, he did it in such a way that he let the victim know that he was about to do this, which shows a lack of criminal sophistication and an immaturity. So I think we're, we are looking for somebody on the younger end, somebody who is not really criminally sophisticated. Does a drug problem or anything like that play into that? As I'm thinking about the well, mentality of someone making these moves, if that could affect the, the, the profile at all, you know, like it looks immature, but could it be someone older but is addicted to crack? Well, and, and that's why I said immaturity. I love with immaturity rather than, you know, age specifically because, you know, you can act immature when you're under the influence and you can act much more impulsively than you normally would when you're under the influence. So actually, any kind of substance abuse can lower somebody's self-control. So it can make them more impulsive and do things that they normally wouldn't do. The fact that literally this guy is walking out after shooting someone and just by the grace of God doesn't get seen by the cop that's literally yards away. I mean, it's just so lucky. But at the same time, it's not a very sophisticated thing. You know, right. to shoot somebody while a cop is literally approaching, you know, to shoot somebody after that person that you've shot has already informed the police. I mean, those are bonehead moves. Right. So 
And that's what I was saying. I was, it, to me, that's like that's a that's a lack of impulse control, like just yeah, panic and just doing whatever seems like right right now and running. Yeah, I don't know that it's panic because panic tells me that he's completely, you know, surprised or whatever by what's happening and doesn't know how to respond. You know, he seemed to get away pretty handily and. If he was uh, drugged up somebody, don't you think it would have increased the chances that he had walked right into that cop versus stealthily got away around the corner? You know? Right. I don't know. Because uh, to me, uh, I just, first of all, the chances of being able to get away under those circumstances were so slim, and he did it. He managed to do it. So I don't know. It just doesn't sound as two shots that both went into his heart that just happened to pierce all four chambers of his heart it's fairly well executed and it just doesn't seem like it's not like one shot in the heart and one shot in the right shoulder you know what i'm saying Mm -hmm. i mean and even if it was pop pop and i don't think it was pop pop because of the movement the the difference in the angles i think it's possible that bill was crouching down in that process he gets hit when he's still up and as he's going down, now the, the angle is now from upper to lower and, and from one side to the other because of the movement of Bill, not necessarily the movement of the offender. Right, I agree. All right, listen, I'm going to run, but I'll call you back. Yeah, call me. get in my car and outside the building, all right? Great, because I've got some suspects I want to run by now that you've done a profile. Okay. Thanks. I'll call you right back. Bye. A short while after that phone call, Jim did call me back, and we assessed how our prime suspects, the Jeffs, fit into this new profile. But that's next week on Truth and Justice. Truth and Justice is an NBI Studios production and is attributed by Wondery. Produced and edited by Mike Bussing and sound engineering by Shane Yoder. All music for the show was created, composed, and scored by PutThemInASong.com, who also mixed and mastered this episode. Our Season 7 logo was created by me, with assistance from Zach Weaver and Shane Yoder. All of our font across all of our logos and banners were created by Tate Krupa of Red Swan Graphic Design. You can find more of Tate's work on Etsy. I'd like to thank Katie Ross of CreatedInTandem.com for designing, creating, managing, and maintaining our website, Truth and Justice Pod, where you can view all photos and documents discussed in every episode. And a big thank you to our transcription team, Pamela Westby, Kathy McElhaney, Charlena White, Kaywood Yamnick, Ginger Fiola, Edith Swanneck, and Jen Reese Incandela. And as always, thank you to all of you for all of your engagement and support. If you like the show and you'd like to support us, you can do so in a number of ways. To financially support the show, you can go to patreon.com slash truthandjustice. On the Patreon page, you can pledge as little as $3 a month. And we also have reward levels on Patreon that include access to behind-the-scenes videos of the tapings of our Friday follow-up episodes, ad-free versions of all of our episodes, Truth and Justice Army t-shirts and hats, and even the opportunity to co-host one of our Friday follow-up episodes. You can also help us out by going to iTunes and leaving us a five-star rating and review. And lastly, you can always support us by supporting the companies that sponsor this program. If you have a new case that you'd like us to consider for future seasons, you can submit your cases on our website, truthandjusticepod.com. 
Just click on the case submission button and fill out the form. And the most important thing that you can do is engage in our investigations. You can keep in touch with us through our email, theories at truthandjusticepod.com. You can like our Facebook page or join in on the conversation on the Truth and Justice Podcast fans page. For all of you tweeters, you can connect with us on Twitter at TruthJusticePod. I personally can be found on social media at Bob Ruff Truth, and Mike can be found at Murb Gaming, M-U-R-R-B-G-A-M-I-N-G. And don't forget that we always have our 24-7 voicemail line open for questions, comments, or tips on our cases. That phone number is 269-224-2833. However you do it, stay engaged, stay in touch. But as for now, I'm signing off. I'm Bob Rupp, and this has been Truth and Justice. Need parts? O'Reilly Auto Parts has parts. Need them fast? We've got fast. No matter what you need, we have thousands of professional parts people doing their part to make sure you have it. Product availability. Just one part that makes O'Reilly stand apart. The professional parts people. Oh, 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 O'Reilly Auto Parts. If you own a vehicle with less than 200,000 miles and have an auto warranty about to expire or no warranty coverage at all, listen up. CarShield has a low-cost, month-to-month vehicle protection plan that covers more parts than ever. Visit carshield.com audio to find out how you could pay almost nothing for covered auto repairs. Drivers who activate this vehicle protection today will also receive free roadside assistance, free towing, and car rental options at no additional cost. Get your free quote today at carshield.com audio. That's carshield.com audio. With LinkedIn Jobs, we tap into a network of more than a billion professionals to help you find quality professionals quickly and easily for any role you need. Marketing wizards? Found them. Software engineers? Found. That project manager I could never seem to hire? And found. LinkedIn Jobs quickly matches your roles with candidates with the right skills and experience. In fact, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Post your first job for free and get started at linkedin.com slash spoken. That's linkedin.com slash spoken. Terms and conditions apply.